If you couldn't already tell, we've kicked off the Christian year by celebrating Advent today. And Advent, as many of you know, is the season of waiting, of anticipation and preparation for Christ. Okay? This season looks backward and forward in faith in a real sense. In the, in the backward exercise, we learn to enlarge our hearts in the spiritual practice of patience, something we so desperately need in such a crazy culture, and especially in this time of year. We learn patience, and we place ourselves in the shoes of those prior to Christ and imagine what sight would have looked like for them without seeing Jesus, okay? kind of seeing in the darkness. We strive to imagine a world without the light of Christmas that we all know and how that might have been for the faithful awaiting in the darkness because in our forward exercise of Advent, that's really what we're doing as we await Christ's second return. Okay? He, he will come again. So while Christ has come, we are still waiting for his second advent, his second coming. That is literally what the word advent means. And this is the day where Christmas will be all year long. And in a real sense, when Jesus returns, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be Emmanuel with us in an even more realized sense than we already currently know and experience. So advent helps us to maybe distinguish a little bit the realized in Jesus from the unrealized. Helps us distinguish the, the already and the not yet in Christ. It helps us to see there's much more work to do in Christ's kingdom. But upon the arrival of Christmas, we do get to taste of the four fruits and the fruits of the kingdom, don't we? Christmas is a really, really magical time of the year, if you think about it, where literally the nations, this is what happens every year, if you haven't noticed, literally the nations all around the world seeing of the triumph of Christ our King who overcomes the darkness with his light. Whether they believe the Christmas carols that they're singing or not, no one can deny that the spirit of Christmas like engulfs the entire world every year. That's a, that's a beautiful image if you haven't caught that before. To think about even the pagans, the, the atheist friends of yours, you find that they're jamming along to those Christmas songs. Whether they know even really what's happening, there's something deep down inside their souls that's being drawn and conformed closer to Christ. That's where that one day of the year where the world is like, wow, this is what it's kind of supposed to be like. This is what the world looks like through the lens of Christ. So to better help us lean into the coming and waiting aspects of this season, we're going to do a short Advent series on the covenants. The covenants. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with Advent? What does the covenant have to do with Advent? What do the covenants have to do with Advent? Well, as we will discuss in a moment, all of human history can be viewed through the covenant. Though it looked different at different times, uh, no doubt about that, we learn that in the New Testament that the substance of the covenant of grace has always been with Christ himself. Right, Those things that they were looking forward to in the Old Testament, we find out is Jesus. He is who the, uh, the, the covenant is ultimately with. We saw this in our last series where we, we found out Jesus is the offspring that was promised to them. This is what Christmas really is all about, where we unwrap the mystery that has been veiled for ages and find out that the covenant all through history was with Jesus. Jesus is that present that we unwrap at Christmas. So the, the promises, the prophecies, the, the sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and all the other types and shadows and ordinances, all of that uh, delivered to the people of God, we find out was the mere wrapping paper uh, that we unwrap and we find out, oh, it was Jesus and God himself is the present. He is what it is all about. That is what all of those things in the Old Testament are fueling towards as we come to Christmas and what Jesus 
reveals to us and what he is. So this Advent, we're going to do a short survey of the entire history of salvation. I know that seems like a daunting task, but that's kind of what we're going to do, starting in generation, uh, uh, Genesis all the way to Revelation. Uh, we're going to place our feet in the shoes of those who have waited before us. There are four weeks in Advent, so four weeks before we get to Christmas, and each week we're going to focus on one of the Old Testament covenants that pointed to the New Covenant in Jesus. So this is week one. We're going to look at the Proto-Evangelium. I'll explain what that word means later. And the Noahic Covenant, so God's covenant with Noah. Week two, we're going to look at the Abrahamic Covenant, so God's covenant with Abraham. Week three, we're going to look at the Mosaic Covenant, so God's covenant with Moses. And week four, which is Christmas Eve, and I think it'll work really well, uh, takes us to the Davidic Covenant, so God's covenant with David, the king of Israel. And, and then, of course, after Christmas, we're going to talk about the New Covenant in Jesus. So Christmas comes, Jesus is revealed, we see who he is and what he's about. That's how we move and transition into the new covenant realized in Jesus. So you might think of each week as kind of, we know what Christ is, but we're going to wrap him up in one of the Old Testament covenants just to unwrap him again at Christmas and see how more beautiful he is and what he is to us. So let us now turn to our text, Genesis chapter 8. We're going to look all the way through 9:17, and just a little bit of context here if you're uh, unfamiliar where we're jumping in. This story picks up directly after Noah and his family exit the ark after the floodwaters receded. So I think pretty much everyone in the room is familiar with that Bible story where God floods the earth. This is right after Noah and his family come out after the earth has been flooded. This is Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 9, 17. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all flesh of the sea. And to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plant, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh while it's life, that is, it's blood. And for your life, blood, I will rec require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From this fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. 
that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, at the start, we can already see that you have a heart for your creation. That you love what you've created. You created it good. And you created us in your image. And Lord, we already see that. And we pray, Father, that as we approach you as your image bearers, that you would speak to us today. I pray that the... Um, the same spirit that breathed life into us, the same spirit that um, inspired the text that has been carried down through thousands of years for us to be able to hold in our hands today, that same spirit that enlivens us and gives us spiritual life, I pray that that would resonate with your word and that those two things would be connected, that we would be so connected to your word that we truly understand it. I pray that our hearts would grow through it. I pray that you would stretch us and uh, and increase our faith in you, that you would help us to learn more about your son Jesus today, and that we might be changed and transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So if you've been around here long enough, you've heard me use the analogy uh, quite a bit about putting on our glasses, right? I talk a lot about putting on your different kind of glasses. There's many lenses through which Christians view life. I've talked about uh, seeing everything in the light of Jesus. So put our Jesus glasses on. I've talked about gospel glasses. You have to see everything through the lens of the gospel. We, we see life through death, burial, resurrection. We, we see in scripture that there are the, uh, these passages that talk about being heavenly minded. Have your mind set on things above. So we have a heavenly vision and heavenly glasses. These are all lenses in which we color our Christian thinking and see the world in a, in a real colorful image rather than just a one-sided black and white view. Right? So there's lots of lenses through which we look at life. But one of the lesser spoken of lenses is the covenantal lens. We might call this covenantal vision or covenant vision. You might not think much about it, but God has always interacted with humanity through the lens of the covenant. Okay? It's not just that we should see God, so kind of in the upward vision. It's not just that we need to see God through the lens of covenant vision, but that's actually how God views us as well. When he sees us, he sees us through the covenant. God has covenant vision. That's the way that he sees us, just like the other vision too. God sees us through the lens of the gospel. Thank God that he doesn't see us through our sin and through that lens, right? So by covenant, I mean that a sovereign figure administers terms of agreement between two parties that have attending blessings and curses. This is a very simple understanding of covenant. But in the ancient world, this is something that people actually would have been familiar with in their day. So, so oftentimes, 
uh, in the ancient world, this is why we can just jump right into Genesis and it mentions covenant and it's assumed that you know because there was this understanding back in the ancient culture of what a covenant was. So in their days, most of the time, what it was, though, was a king who kind of condescended to the people in order to give an order of living. So the law, the law of the land in his realm, you can live on these terms. You can live in my kingdom. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you don't do this, you won't be blessed. Okay. So even outside of God's covenant, there were people that were familiar with this covenantal thinking. And this is really the way that humans have actually thought all through history. So the story of the Bible is one big covenant succession from Genesis to Revelation. In the Garden of Eden before the fall, we see a covenant of works, sometimes called a covenant of life. And this began in Genesis, as I said, with Adam, who was the representative head of humanity. We've talked about some of these things before, that headship concept as it relates to covenant. Adam was the head of that covenant. He was to lead humanity as the only human along with his wife. He was to lead humanity in its subduing of the earth by being fruitful and multiplying. Right? You remember these themes from Genesis. This covenant was a conditional covenant that required personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, of which the tree of life was a pledge of blessing. Okay? You can eat of the tree as long as you're in here, as long as you don't do what? Eat of the forbidden tree, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. Okay? There's the blessing and the curse. This was a covenant, and this is the way that Scripture will later talk about it too, this covenant that God had with Adam. And it was this covenant that was broken uh, uh, when we read of the fall of man. Right? We, we talk about the fall all the time. It was actually a breaking of the covenant. It was a fall from covenant living and covenant blessing that they were falling from. No one, well, some people do, but it's not often that people ask, well, what were they falling from? That was covenant community that man had with God. They were falling from this. So God kept his promise, and the day that Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they died spiritually. They didn't die physically, right? We're still here as humans. We're still living and breathing. But all of humanity fell and died spiritually with them because we, in a real sense, were in their loins, right? We come from them. They were our ancestors. And this is the broken covenant that all of mankind enters into upon birth. Upon arrival into this world, all of you, uh, before you'd ever done anything good, before you'd done anything evil, before you were even done anything at all, you are considered a covenant breaker as a human. That's what we humans are. We are covenant breakers. We are people who rebel against God. And this is the doctrine of original sin that Christians have always believed in. You've probably heard this talked about. Original sin goes all the way back where we are connected to Adam through our humanity, and we're in covenant with God, and we've broken that covenant. We're in trouble. Okay. So, so Scripture tells us that mankind by this fall has made himself incapable of spiritual life by that covenant. We can't do it. Right? We are all dead in our trespasses and sins because we are covenantally connected to Adam, who also was dead in his trespasses and sins. In short, all of humanity are covenant breakers. And, and this in uh, theology is referred to as the covenant of works, as I said, covenant of life, sometimes called. But God, okay, that's really bad news, right? That, that wasn't very helpful, was it? But God, in his mercy and grace, was pleased to make a second covenant. Okay, this is where we get a sigh of relief. Okay, that, we need something here. Okay, There's, Something's got to give. So a new covenant was given, if you will. And this is the, the covenant that is commonly called the covenant of grace. And it's in this covenant of grace that God freely offers sinners like you and I life and salvation in Jesus Christ. Pretty basic, right? This, this covenant requires faith in Jesus, the new man, 
Jesus is the new Adam. We've talked about this before. Um, and as the head of that covenant, uh, that we might be saved from our sin and have abundant life in Christ. So covenant explains how we got into the mess in the world. Covenant also explains how we get out of the mess in the world that we've all contributed to as covenant breakers. And therefore, covenant becomes for us a lens through which we see everything. Okay? We, we need to think in these kind of terms, through which we read history, through which we interpret the Bible, through which we interpret how we live and how we think. And this is a, we need to realize this is the way that we see everything. Okay? This is a deeply covenantal world. And if we're not looking at it through that, that kind of lens, we're missing something that God has placed us into, namely a covenant. So all of God's dealing with man can be summed up under a heading of one of these two things, either the covenant of life, you're either in the covenant of life in a kind of works-centered way where you're living by works, or you're in the covenant of grace. And we know that no one can be saved this way. There's only one way to be saved, and it's the covenant of grace with Jesus. But within the one covenant of grace are four covenants. Okay, So we had to understand the basics before we can move into what we're talking about now with different covenants. right? So under the one heading of covenant of grace, there are four covenants uh, that were made with temporary administrations that lead to fulfillment in Christ. Okay, This is where we get to the four weeks that we're splitting things into. So this week we will focus on the first announcement of this covenant of grace and its first formal covenant with Noah. Okay. You may have wondered what that word proto-evangelium means. What in the world is that? Well, this is the word that theologians over the years have used to refer to as the first announcement of the gospel in Genesis 3. It wasn't quite a covenant, but it was an announcement. So proto means first. Evangelium, it refers to the gospel. This is the first gospel, the first announcement that you get hope in the world. So in Genesis 3.15, following the fall of man, this is what you hear, this little hope given. Directly after Adam and Eve break the covenant of life with God by eating of the forbidden fruit, God gives an announcement to each of the parties involved. He talks to Adam, he talks to Eve, and he talks to the serpent. Okay? Now, for this Advent season, I want you as a covenant breaker, because that's what we just said we were. We're covenant breakers. I want you to imagine the kind of suspense that was in the air that Adam and Eve might have felt as they have just broken this covenant before the proto-evangelist. Before Genesis 3.15 and what it says. Think about that. God had literally given them the world. He'd given Adam and Eve paradise, walking with him in the cool of the day, and they rebelled. They did the very thing that God said not to do. And that's what explains the fear, right? They're running, they're hiding. So put yourself in their shoes, how you would experience God, who has said nothing other than the covenant of works. Do this and you shall live, essentially. Don't break my law and you can live. Okay? Prior to Genesis 3.15, there is no word of hope if they were to hypothetically break the covenant God gave them. God didn't say anything about a second uh, covenant, a second plan. Okay? They had only death and cursing to look forward to. Their sin brought a crushing burden that they could not bear. That's why they covered themselves. right? They hid and they covered themselves. How do you make things right with a creator after you've broken trust with him? Right? You had communion and you broke that. The one thing that you had, the person that made you, you blew it. Okay? As fellow humans, I want you to consider that. Because sometimes it's healthy to go there in our hearts. Uh, sometimes it's healthy for the soul to reflect on our condition apart from Christ, to kind of block out in our minds for a minute what we know and have been revealed, like the gospel. It's good to, to set that aside just for a second to, to exercise something in us and help us feel 
something that we sometimes don't think about, okay? When, when we do this exercise of the soul, it stretches us in a similar way to physical exercise, right? Where you're, you're straining yourself, you're overexerting yourself in a way uh, to, to grow stronger. And there's a, there's a real spiritual dimension that when we're doing this in the Advent season where we're teaching ourselves patience, where we're teaching ourselves waiting, where we're teaching ourselves and putting ourselves in the shoes of those who waited so long ago for Christ, it's helping us, okay? It helps our soul. It helps us get more in shape with the, the ways that we should be able to tolerate the world and patiently await the things that God is bringing to us. So now that we can imagine uh, a bit how this felt, let, let's ice our strained souls for a minute, okay? Because that's stressful. Let's be honest. If we were to actually put ourselves in the shoes of Adam and Eve, that's a hard place to be, okay? So, so God gave good news after this. This is where we take a break, take a breather, and we realize that God gave the world good news to Satan first. Kind of interesting the way that God does this. When he's giving the, the, the terms after the breaking of the covenant, it's actually the good news uh, that he gives to the serpent that is for us as we read about this. Adam and Eve were probably within earshot of, the, of God's curse to the serpent when he said this. Here's the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to the serpent and the woman is Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, that's the woman's offspring, and you shall bruise his heel. Did you catch it? That's the gospel. That's the closest thing that humanity had to the gospel at this point. It's kind of like, uh, imagine a pitch dark room and someone kind of starts to light a match, uh, but it doesn't quite take. It's just kind of like this flicker in a light of, or in a world of darkness. It's like, whoa, what was that? You, you see it for a second, and, and Eve's offspring, is, it was told, will crush the serpent. That's something, okay? Now, it doesn't say that Adam and Eve would be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. It didn't say that, which sometimes we can start to misread that and think that that's what it's saying in the Proto-Evangelion, but it didn't quite say that. They had very, very little to attach their faith to. Think about that. That's what I'm trying to get you to tolerate now, is understand where they were. It was simply a tiny revelation of God's intent towards mankind. That's what they were hanging on to. He was at least in some manner partnering with them when he said Satan would eventually be cursed by one of Eve's children. So Adam and Eve could take from that, okay, I think he's on my side. I think it, as far as Satan and me, I think he's against Satan and I think he's on my, on my side. But beyond that, there isn't much, right? We still get our heel bruised. Satan's, he gets his head crushed, which is worse. So it's like, okay, at least I'm not that guy. That, that's kind of where Adam and Eve were. Post-fall, okay? That's what they had to place their faith in. And once we consider the fact that Cain, okay, Adam and Eve's first child, that's the offspring, okay? They've been told, from our offspring, we're going to get hope, right? Cain kills Eve's second child, okay? That doesn't seem like good news. How, how does this work with the gospel? So, so imagine that. As the world starts to progress, you're going to have hope in your, in your children, in your offspring. He's going to crush the serpent, and then your kid goes and kills your other kid and runs off and gets banished. It's like, okay. What? Like, how is, I don't see how this works out, right? So, so this doesn't seem very hopeful for humanity at this point, as we're in early Genesis. And the next couple of chapters aren't any better. It's really just a growing record of, of the sins that start to heap up higher and higher that is dramatically halted by what? A flood. Boom. It's all gone. All of humanity gone. Now it says in Genesis 6, 11, 13, before the flood, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, 
and the earth was filled with violence. And I thought this was interesting as I was going through that word violence is actually in the Hebrew Hamas. I'll just leave that there. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now at this point, the, the hope becomes quite dim unless you are Noah or you're very, very close to Noah. Right? There doesn't seem to be much hope. But in Genesis 6, 18, it says this, but I will establish my covenant. Okay, so the, 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 the two options is like we have covenant over here or total destruction and annihilation. Right? That, those are the two options. In Genesis 6, 18, but I will establish my covenant with you, he tells Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, here is the first time in your Bibles where you see a covenant is mentioned. It's not until Genesis 6, 18 that we first find that word covenant. But what this really was, was a revelation that God would continue to have a relationship with at least some people, obviously not all people, uh, but some people would have a relationship with God and humanity would be able to keep going and move forward. And this was something that Noah could place his faith in. God's going to be on the side of me. He said he's going to. This is his covenant that he's given with me and with my family. So no, it wasn't explicitly placing his faith in Jesus Christ, like we like to think is the pretty gospel that they had back then. It wasn't that. It was placing his faith in God's revelation so far. He's just hanging on to what he's got so far. Now, remember, faith, according to Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay? And the context of that passage is uh, about placing our faith in what God has revealed, not just what we hope is true, right? Okay. The hope is according to the revealed promise that is not yet seen. This is important for you to realize in your own faith. As you're thinking about definitions of faith and how to walk out in faith and how to live by faith, if you are waiting in faith this Advent season for your new Rolls Royce, you've misunderstood how faith works. Okay, hoping whatever your imagination might desire is not the same as faith. Okay, it's not just what you hope and dream might be true. It's what God has given to you to place your faith in. Okay, so biblical faith places its anchor on things that God has concretely said. And you can say, I am convicted. I believe this is what God says, and I will bank on it. That's true faith, not just whatever we hope might be true. So that's important for you as you're you're living out your faith that I, that I say that because that gets misinterpreted sometimes with, with people's understanding of faith. So we hold fast in his word, not just what we dream of. So Hebrews tells us what happens next in Genesis. Jump back to Genesis for a moment. Hebrews 11, 7, God tells us. He kind of narrates the New Testament version of what happened in Genesis. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Comes by faith. The thing that I want you to see here is that Noah, like everyone else that has ever been saved in all of human history, is saved by faith. He's saved by faith. Not God saves some people back then this way. God saves them a different way this time and a different way this time. And then when we get to Jesus, then we are saved by faith. It's all along saved by faith. And this is what helps us understand when we see things of the covenant that it's always been the same. 
there's there are some ways that people have looked at it and say, well, God saves the, these people by works. He saves this people by works and faith. And then us, we get over here. Now we're saved by faith. That's not the biblical picture. Okay, Everyone that's ever been saved has been saved by faith. So uh, he remains, Noah remains a member of the covenant by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. The same New Testament uh, formula that we are. So long story short, God floods and kills all of humanity. Okay? You know the story. Except for Noah and his household. Now, I want you to again think like Noah and his household. We put our shoes in the, the our feet in the shoes of Adam and Eve for a moment. Um, let's do that now with Noah and his family. Okay? Think about Noah and his family as they the waters recede and they're starting to step off of the ark. The thoughts that they might have had is they've just experienced all of humanity dying. Okay, think about everyone you know and just narrowing it down to you and your family. You're on this boat. Everyone has died. You've just watched your friends, maybe even some of your extended family, drown to death. You've watched pets die. You've watched animals die. You've watched houses get swept away. Everything you know you've watched wash away. And now there you stand on this newly created ground coming out of the ark. Okay? Imagine the pressure. Okay? On the one hand, it's quite a fearful and scary reality. The earth has just been cleansed, because that's really kind of what God was doing. It was, it was cleansed, and therefore it's holy ground. But you, on the other hand, remain leftovers from the old world. You're part of the sinners that were washed away. Okay? And there you stand with this newly cleansed world before you that has just been cleansed because of sin, and you as a sinner come and dare to walk with your dirty, grimy feet, on this holy ground. What next? Like what, what is God going to do next? We just watched him kill everyone. What am I going to do next? Is probably what Noah and his family were thinking. Could you cause another flood? I'm sure that crossed their mind. I mean, they just watched it happen. Remember, God hasn't given their co the covenant with them yet. Think, think before the covenants come, how that would have felt. Like, how do we even interact with this God who just did that? He seems pretty, pretty wild like that. He just killed everyone. Could I be the next one that brought about a global flood? Okay. Will God wipe out everything because of my sin? And, and what are we going to do about the sin problem? How does that get resolved? How are we ever going to get away from that? Because I certainly haven't been untainted by its sting. I experienced sin. What are we going to do about it? It's not gone. That's some of the things that Noah and his family were probably experienced as they walked out of the ark. And this is where the Noahic covenant speaks hope to all of creation. All of creation. Did you notice how many times it said that it's not just with Noah, but it's with all the living things? It's all earth. This is who the covenant of uh, the Noahic covenant is with. It's with all of creation. And Noah, in reverential fear, as Hebrews tells us, in faith, offered up a burnt sacrifice from one of the new animals standing on earth. Okay, there, there, there's not too many animals around. There's only a couple left over. I'm sure that they were probably even born on the the ark. And here we have these brand new, these very few animals that he is able to to pick from and he's gonna in an act of faith say we don't have much left but god i'm gonna give you what we have and when god smelled the sacrifice of this animal he found it pleasing it says in 8:21, chapter 8:21 of genesis it was pleasing for noah to do this now think about that the smell of sacrificial death satisfied god now as part of this exercise that we're trying to do, this Advent thinking, I want you to connect the dots about how this was preparing for something better. 
Okay, how this sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God, how this might point towards something else, how this sacrifice and how this death was actually something that satisfied uh, uh, something needed in God, namely his justice. Okay, God is a just God. He requires reckoning. For blood, he will have blood. Right? That's what we see even there in Genesis. So he accepted the life of one thing for the life of another. Noah believed this substitutionary pattern was a proper covenantal way to relate to his God before God ever revealed that to his people later on. Think about that act of faith. Now, Noah, in a real way, kind of shaped our faith going forward in this substitutionary understanding of how to relate to God. So here we find that in this covenant ritual, God explained and expanded on the revelation of the covenant. This is kind of the terms of the covenant. He tells this household, shaking in their boots, that are scared on this new holy ground, that he will never again do what he just did. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's us, by the way. We are evil from our youth. You understand it. And those silent reflections, we get a real taste of, oh yeah, that's, that's me too. And it's not just something that's recently happened. It's something from my very youth. There have been parts of me that I hate, that are sinful. And God sees that and he says, we're still going to have a relationship. We're still going to be able to proceed with this thing. Neither, he says, uh, neither will he ever again strike down every living creature as he has done. The creatures didn't do anything. They were suffering because of what we had done. But he says, I'm not going to do that again either. I'm not going to wipe out every single creature as I did before. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Think about the implications of that covenant. What God promises will always happen. Now, I want you to think about the possibilities of hope for humanity that come from this one promise that we don't give much attention to, of what God promises with creation that he will always do. He says it's an eternal covenant. It's never going to end. While God does not promise yet to atone for the sins of the people here, he does at least give them the hope that their sins won't bring about utter destruction of the earth, like it did at one point. Okay? That, that he will at least pass over, this is the way the New Testament speaks about it, he will pass over their sins uh, even if we don't know, uh, even if they didn't know eventually how they would be reconciled. Obviously we know now, we know what Jesus did, but again, let's try to uh, sustain that thinking and keep it up there while we're working through this so we can try to get ourselves in their, their thinking. So for all the people in the room, I want you to think about the implications of this covenant. For all the people in the room with the doomsday of humanity, uh, you have a, a fundamentally pessimistic understanding of humanity. This gives us hope that the earth will be preserved by the covenantal restraints placed on our self-destructive tendencies. God says, I'm not going to let you kill yourself. I'm not going to let you blow this up. I made this and you're not going to mess it up beyond repair. I'm not going to let that happen. So as we start to fear and, and get anxious about some of the newer technologies and all the things that's happening right now, uh, think of nuclear war. Think of climate change and all the fears that come with that and all that kind of thinking. Even God himself won't be our final fate. He says, I'm not going to wipe everything out again like I did at one point. Okay? The God who is sovereign over life and death who brings order to the earth in the form of reliable seasons and conditions that are habitable, makes a large promise here. He says, I'm going to keep it this way. I'm going to keep the earth going forward like it has been before. You're going to be able to plant vineyards, and they're going to grow. 
you're going to have a seed time and you're going to have a harvest. It's going to get cold. It's also going to get hot. It's going to be back and forth, back and forth. You're going to have seasons, okay? And we are promised that sin will not bring about global destruction. This is explicitly very, very clear in verse 21 and 22. The sun rises on the just and the unjust. Okay, this is kind of the way that Scripture talks about it. It's not if you get really bad that the unjust, the sun won't rise on them and the world ends. God's mercies are new every morning. Right, this is the way that God tells us about the creation, and that's something that we can bank on. That's something that we can place our faith on. And by extension, this also gives us insights into how we should read that passage in the New Testament in 2 Peter 3.10 that tells us that the heavens will pass away with a roar. Think about that. We, we often think it says the earth will pass away with a roar. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the earthly, or sorry, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. Okay, and a lot of people have said, well, see, the world's going to end in fire. Everything's going to burn up at the end. But in light of God's covenant with all creation, again, this isn't just no, it's all creation, we can see that he promises never again to bring about global destruction in a physical way. But this does not then... Therefore, leave out the possibility uh, that God might bring about a spiritual destruction of evil in the world. And actually, if you think about it, that's the hope, isn't it? That spiritually, we will be, we will be cleansed of the, the evils and the, the, the hardships that we ha have. In fact, this is our greatest hope, that God will bring about spiritual cleansing in the world. Think about baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay? That, that's the, the kind of purifying and cleansing spiritual element that we long for. As humans, we, we groan for, we want this. Okay, that's the kind of cleansing that we actually desire and hope for as the sons of God. And for this reason, we can see it is the heavenly or spiritual refinement that's in view in Second Peter. So until this day, okay, Romans kind of gives us the outlook. How do we look forward in light of what we know? It says all creation groans in labor pains, not to be burned up, not to die, they're not suicidal, not to have an end to, but for the revealing of the sons of God. That's Christians, okay? That's what creation's longing for. Creation is longing for the sons of God to be revealed, to be harbingers of righteousness, the ones who should be doing the things that they are called to do, being fruitful, multiplying, cultivating, working the earth like we were actually meant to be. We were we are supposed to be laborers in glory craft. That's what the creation longs for, that we might display the glory of God in our work of recreation, okay? Giving back producing, working the world like it was meant to be worked. So the Noahic covenant gives us hope in a God who's greater and more powerful than the power of sin. That's the beauty of the Noahic covenant. Noah might not have known how God would later take care of the sin problem, but at least at this point he knew that the possibility of life and relationship was now open for him even as a sinner to walk the earth. We as sinners are still able to live in God's world as sinners walking on holy ground. So, so this is a hope for preservation and patience on God's part. God says, this is how I am. This is my nature to you. I'm patient. Uh -uh. I'm going to preserve what I've given to you. This is the way that the New Testament speaks about it. It's actually from this same passage in 2 Peter 3. Um, it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. God himself is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay, this is the context there, that God is a God of hope, that God is a God of preservation, and he is patiently persevering humanity to bring about sons of glory, to bring about people towards repentance. This is God's desire for humanity. 
And also, I want you to see the, the recreative possibilities too. Not just that God is patient and persevering and, and preserves, but uh, Noah would not have missed the fact that this was also a recreative event for humanity. Think about the themes as we were, we're just looking at the garden and, and Eden. He tells Noah and his household to be fruitful and to multiply, fill the earth. In other words, I haven't given up on the first command. I haven't given up on the first plan. I'm still sticking to it. It's not that, okay, we wiped everything out and we're going to do things totally different. Now it's no, we're going to do things differently in grace, but the mission is still the same. Okay, Paradise, communion with God. We're going to keep with this mission, and I'm going to view it through the lens of covenant now, through the, the lens of grace, rather than you breaking it and the, the relationship being broken. So this echoes the original hope of Eden, now realized in the covenant of grace with Noah. He doesn't say, hoard, hunker, bunker down, and, and don't add children to the earth. I mean, that, that's, let's be honest, that's what some people are kind of thinking right now. They look around and they look at the news and like, okay, I've got to stock up. Like, I've got to buy this. Uh, we need lots of rice, lots of things that don't perish quickly. Uh, so we, we can hunker down and, goodness, I'm not going to add any children to this crazy, messed up world. We just got to wait it out until the whole thing burns up. That, that's kind of the mentality that some people live with. Uh, but the Noahic covenant gives us hope here, doesn't it? He, with promise and recreative hope, tells us to live life abundantly. Enjoy life. Embrace life. Live life with flourishing in view because God is not going to cut you off because of the perennial sin problem. Sin doesn't win in the end, and don't act like it does in your living. Live hopefully. There's grace. Okay, Unbeknownst to them, that will be dealt with later on. The, the, the sin problem gets taken care of. Noah doesn't even know that. But he's still living fruitfully within the covenant. So that's what we are called to do as well. As we look back at this, we're able to say with Noah, amen to that. Let's live hopefully. Let's build this out. Let's be, let's be uh, trusting in God's preservation, trusting in God's uh, patience with us to work with us instead of against us, even in our sin because of what Christ has done that we see now revealed in the new covenant. So I close the sermon, but I want to give you the charge of our first week of Advent and, and pray that you see God's covenant uh, with his people. It gives us hope. Okay, and that's what the first candle actually represents. The Noahic covenant gives us huge hope just for humanity, especially as Christians, but even humanity, that there's this hope for preservation while God patiently works with vile sinners and also uh, hope for recreative possibilities as we remain faithful to our original calling to be fruitful as humans. Okay? So your vocations, what you're doing and you're working, you should see that there's hope in that, that there's actually meaning connected to what you're doing back to the world. But until that day of final culmination, we with all creation, as Romans tells us, we groan with patience, okay? learning to place our hope in the second advent of Christ when all things will be made new. So let me close with this, this beautiful passage in Romans that helps orient our hearts through this advent season to, to, to be in the right place. So Romans 8, 18 through 25 says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us, by the way. For the creation was subjected to it, to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. That For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we hope for it with patience. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask for hope today. As we look at your word, we see that there are many promises given to us, many clear revelations of your heart, your intent, your care for humanity. And we pray that we would take hold of all of those by faith today. I pray that as we look at Noah and the faith that he had, that that would encourage us all the more. As we continue in this Advent season to look at all of the, uh, the faithful who you made your covenant with prior to Jesus, I pray that their faith would encourage us, just as we are able to look at the, the hall of faith from Hebrews 11, of all those who are faithful before us, I pray that that would all the more help us to take hold and cling to every bit of revelation that you've given to us in Christ Jesus, that it might change and transform the way that we live, that it would help us in the way that we interact with our creation around us, especially uh, as we look at the Noahic covenant, that it is made with all creation. Help us to think um, holistically about this, not just personally and thinking about our souls, but even thinking about our bodies and the communities that we live in and the world that we are called to be fruitful and multiply in. Propel us by your grace. We ask this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Elders, or as we participate towards.